So now I'm a distant cowboy who's just riding along the plains on his horse looking for a movie to review with no more co-star slash co-pilot that was alongside him to review the said movies and we'll be going solo from here on out. Yeah, so just to reiterate why we're going solo now on Hayden's Entertainment Hour, it is because Brian made the decision to leave Hayden's Entertainment Hour to not stunt his growth creatively and for him to basically go off and do his own thing. Now, the one thing that I want to say about it is, again, Brian, you were a great co-host. I can't believe that you put up with me and all my shenanigans for so long. Uh, if you're going off to make music or do whatever you are doing to be creative, um, I will support you 100%. Obviously, you were a great co-host. I really wish I could have you back. I'm hoping you'll guest star sometimes. But as of now, yes, this podcast is officially solo. It is just me at the reins and... Well, let's see how it goes, shall we? So as a lot of you guys know, I promised you at the end of the last podcast there would be five movie reviews, which is going to turn into four. So those four movies that I'm going to be talking about today include Eurovision, First Cow, uh, Palm Springs, and Relic. So these four movies that I all watched, I have a mixed bag of opinions on, especially the first one, Eurovision, that we're about to talk about. But obviously, I want to go over some quick news that's been buzzing around Hollywood, obviously, because as a lot of people know, movies are just kind of in a mixed bag right now. So let's say you did this thing years ago, it feels like years ago, at least, where you went to a movie theater, you were like, I'll take two, please, to go and watch this movie like, uh, oh, I don't know, The Conjuring or something, and you pay for it, you and your significant other walk up to this thing called a concession stand, you get a popcorn, a soda, you go and sit in the seat that was assigned to you, depending on the theater you go to, you sit there in the theater with a bunch of people next to you, not socially distant, and you watch the movie, then you get up, exit the said theater, get in your car, and drive home. Now, I know that may sound like it was years ago, but it is something uh, that people used to do for fun. So, as a lot of people know, obviously, movies theaters are in a bit of a struggle crisis right now. AMC had to get a humongous loan from somebody just to make sure they could stay open. I think it's been talked about that Amazon is going to buy them out or has possibly buy, uh, bought them out. Regal Cinemas obviously is like, hey, we'll show older movies if you guys want to as long as you come and give us profits again and stuff. But like most of the smaller local chain theaters have already been on that trend where they're like, hey, come watch Jaws on the big screen again. Or hey, come watch like this movie on the big screen again. And people are like, yeah, I'll go pay to watch it, I guess. And surprisingly, it's working. I figured that those small uh, town theaters would crumble, but I've seen decent crowds go in. I'm not going to lie. So it's kind of been a weird system that's been going on with movie theaters, but obviously the new film is what everybody wants to see. They're all waiting to see what the brand new film is that's going to be coming to theaters. And... You know, Tenet is supposed to be that new movie, and it has been delayed again. It's not coming out in August, as a lot of people know. Uh, Chris Nolan finally just said, you know what? Screw it. I know what we're going to do from here on out. We're just going to put Tenet in theaters in select cities on September 4th. And I kind of sat there and rolled my eyes and went, okay, Chris, I get it. You're somebody that is a very much revered filmmaker. You're somebody that knows how to make great original films. People love your brand. They love the movies you put out. But why not just wait till next year or farther down the road? Why you got to be that guy that just forces people to go out into movie theaters to see Tenet? Now, again, I'm very anticipating Tenet, obviously. I want to go out and see the movie because it does look interesting. But the thing that I don't understand about most people is that they're actually willing to go out to theaters to see Tenet just because they want to support Chris Nolan that badly. And I'm all for supporting Chris Nolan. I would see all of his movies in theaters, obviously, but not now while there's a pandemic going on. And granted, I think this is mostly him just putting the chokehold finally on Warner Brothers because, honestly, Warner Brothers doesn't have that much power over Chris Nolan. His movies basically control their box office numbers. So if Chris wants to put it out during the pandemic, they're going to fold like lawn chairs and go, yep, you know what, we'll do it for you, Chris. But I think this is going to be a huge financial setback, but also a setback in general for the movie because I think that people are already 
already so scared about going out and being around other people as cases grow in certain states, but at the same time, they're not really yearning to go to movie theaters anymore. I mean, we've seen movies like Trolls World Tour, Relic, Palm Springs, like movies I'm talking about now recently that have all been thrown on VOD and have been pulling on uh, pulling in very successful numbers, obviously. Like, obviously, I think the future is going to go streaming at home. I don't think theaters are going to be a thing much longer, but I think the art house theaters will stay around, and I do want those to stay around because art house movies deserve to be shown on those art house theaters, but I think that the regular theaters can go away. I'm fine with them throwing Transformers 57 on uh, Voodoo or something for me to watch at some point on my 4K TV at home, but that's the thing. I just think that it's kind of dumb that Chris Nolan wants to force people back into theaters when he knows he can realistically wait down the line, but I know he's one of those guys that's like, well, my movie's bringing big uh, box office numbers. I want to be the pioneer that gets us all back in cinemas and stuff, but look, here's the thing. I'm not really going to go back to cinemas as much as I used to if that's what he wants. If he wants us to involuntarily go back to cinemas and watch movies in theaters with a, uh, which a, uh, with a bunch of people wearing masks trying to watch the movie, breathe through it, and also be socially distant from other people. I just don't think that's going to happen. So that bit of news is obviously something I wanted to go over. There's been some other news that's been buzzing around Hollywood. Like, I guess some movies have started filming again and stuff. There was a movie that was made with John David Washington and Zendaya that was filmed during this whole quarantine madness and stuff. But other than that, like I said, there hasn't really been a whole lot of news, like theater-wise or movies-wise in general and stuff. Like, a few movies got delayed to next year, obviously. A few movies are still trying to come out this year. Uh, Wes Anderson's The French uh, French Dispatch is obviously coming out in 2021. And I'm wondering if it's going to qualify for the Oscar still. I think that he's going to release it around that window that he can get nominated for an Oscar, obviously, but I do think that it is going to work with that movie coming out now next year in theaters, which I always thought Wes Anderson would be the guy to be like, yeah, I'll put it on streaming services, but I guess not. Uh, Obviously, No Time to Die is on that shaky corner edge right now. Black Widow's on that shaky corner edge, obviously. A Quiet Place 2, I think, has been delayed indefinitely now, they said, but like, it's just kind of a mess. But uh, here's the crazy thing. Let's say Nolan's movie that uh, gets put in select uh, cities on September 4th pays off. Uh, then what do those companies do? Do they just start taking all those movies they scheduled for next year and go, wait, we can throw these back in 2019 as quick as we can. Now, I wish more of them would do this option, like the new Bill and Ted movie that's coming out. You can either watch it at home or watch it in theaters. And I would be fine with either, obviously, because say I'm still a little skeptical about getting COVID-19, I'll watch Bill and Ted at home. That seems like it'd be a great movie to watch with some friends in my house and stuff. But like, I don't know right now. I think this is a crummy situation Nolan has put himself into. I would rather he wait until there has been less corona cases before just slapping it in theaters on this select date and stuff. But he do he, I guess. But I rambled on in the intro enough as is. It's time for us to now get into the first movie I want to talk about, which is Eurovision. So the first movie to talk about on the podcast is a brand new Will Ferrell comedy that came out to Netflix. It is about the Eurovision Song Contest that I guess is a real thing that happens across different nations of the world. Basically, they come together to crown somebody the victor of like this big song thing that is Eurovision and... I guess they kind of live in infamy, and that nation gets to hold the Eurovision Song Contest next year. But anyways, so talking about this movie, I just gotta say, I did not really like it. And there's a big reason I do not like it, and it's gonna be a bit of a controversial statement, but I don't think Will Ferrell's that funny anymore. And I know that's going to be something that just people go, what, what, how do you, how do you not find Will Ferrell funny? He's one of the most timeless comedians of our generation. Look, here's the thing that I'll say about Will Ferrell. Do I like him in Talladega Nights? Love him in Talladega Nights. Do I like him in Anchorman? Yeah, I think he's hilarious in Anchorman. But anything post-2014 after the Lego movie, Will Ferrell has not really made anything funny or memorable. Like, would you say Get Hard is a good comedy? 
I mean, Kevin Hart carries that film more than Will Ferrell does, I would argue, and I think most people would tend to agree with that, that he's not even the funniest part of that movie. Uh, the house in which he, he was with that one lady that was from Parks and Rec, that, that's not very memorable comedy right there. Uh, he made another movie this year called Downhill, and nobody remembers that film because it's a horrible remake of Force Majorne. But that's the thing about Will Ferrell. His comedy and just the presence that he used to bring is not there anymore. He's not that funny, and I don't know why so many people are still quick to defend him, like, oh, Will Ferrell is still one of the funniest comedians of our generation. Is he, though? Is he really that funny anymore? Because some comedians still have it, yes, but then some of them kind of fall off and they get stuck doing the same thing on repeat over and over again and people just get tired of them. Because, granted, I know that Will Ferrell is still a big name that'll draw a crowd. A lot of people will go out and watch a movie that has Will Ferrell in it and stuff, and obviously I'm one of those people that will, but I just know going in it probably won't be that funny anymore because Will Ferrell's just not that funny. But anyways, Eurovision is not that great of a movie. I'm just going to say that right now. Uh, the plot of this movie is that a man named Lars and a woman named Sigrid, uh, or Cigarette, I thought they said at one point, but it's Sigrid, played by Rachel McAdams, uh, have been dying for years to get in this big Eurovision song contest. They live in Iceland. They've been revered as a bunch of uh, idiots who can't sing very well and stuff, but they get their big break to go to the Eurovision contest, and they audition for it, fail the audition, but then a boat full of the singers from Iceland explode, and they get their big chance to finally go perform in the Eurovision contest contest and win. So here's the thing that I gotta say about this movie. First off, I know why it's getting so much buzz because I'm not going to knock the songs because the songs are the thing that are getting the most praise behind this movie and I will agree, all of the songs in this movie are very, very good. I like the songs in this movie. They were kind of catchy at times. I can see why some people really like the music because the beats and rhythms do get stuck in my head, especially Double Trouble because that's one of the main songs in the movie and it does have a very catchy chorus, obviously, but uh, I will not rag on the songs. I think the songs are good. Acting-wise, I think everybody does good to decent in this movie. There were a few I was a little shaky on, like there's this Russian guy in the movie who I thought his acting was a little hammy at times. Will Ferrell is not always as funny as he could be at times. Rachel, uh, Rachel McAdams does a fine job, I will say, but the American actors that got to do the Icelandic accents in this movie are horrible. Uh, will Ferrell cannot do a good Icelandic accent. In fact, he's bad at doing accents in general, so I don't know why so many people are like, oh, it's Will Ferrell doing an Icelandic accent. He's going to be hilarious when it just came across as really cringy and goofy. It's like the most American way to betray people from Iceland and stuff. And so I was like, okay, this is not really that good. Uh, Production-wise, I guess the movie looks nice. It's shot decent, but other than that, I can't say there's much positive about this movie, so I'm going to get into the negative right away. So first off, biggest issue I have with this movie is Will Ferrell's character, Lars. Lars is a bit of a psychopath and a bit of a sociopath because he's somebody that's kind of like, oh, it's all about me, me, me. It's all about benefiting me. I want to win the contest. It's all about me. I guess you would say a narcissist in a way, too, but he's like, oh, I think we should win, and he's constantly putting Rachel McAdams down and is like, well, you're not as good as a singer as what you think. I think that the two of us together are great, but you going solo, I just don't see that happening and stuff. Yet Rachel McAdams' character loves him for some reason, despite the fact that he's a horrible piece of shit to her. He's constantly like, hey, I think that you wouldn't do good on your own. You're not a good singer compared to me and stuff. Like, why would she want to be with him? Because she's all lovey-dovey like, oh, I hope Lars and I get to have a family someday. I hope the elves grant us to have a happy life and stuff. And every time Lars puts her down, she still comes back to him. And the entire movie, I'm just like... If at the end of this movie she went off with some other guy and left Lars, I wouldn't be upset because there is no redeeming this character Will Ferrell has. He is a terrible human being that is constantly putting her down and acting like he is one of the greatest singers out there for this contest. Like, it's just a character I can't get into, the type that is so asshole-ish that you're supposed to like them somehow for being that way. Now, granted, there are characters that you can do very well that are assholes the entire movie, but just this character that constantly says, oh, me, me, me about everything, 
how am I supposed to like him? I'm really not. And again, the accent is horrible from Will Ferrell. Um, so then you got other characters in the movie, like Pierce Brosnan is the father, and the only motivation he has in the movie is that he is angry that his son wants to be a big Eurovision singer and stuff. His son is a disgrace for wanting to be a singer. But then in the third act of the movie, he reveals like, oh no, son, I always truly loved you for being brave and going up there and stuff. Like, it is so just quickly thrown together by the ending. Uh, all of the other musicians and singers in this movie, we get no character for or motivation. Like, the Russian guy might be the one we get the closest to, but his only motivation is like, I like Sigurd. Oh, Sigurd likes Lars. Well, I guess I don't like Sigurd anymore. Oh, I won the contest. Cool. Like, that's pretty much as far as it goes. <laughs> like, legit, that is about as far as it goes. Uh, there's a banker guy that has a subplot in this movie, and he's like, well, Iceland cannot afford the Eurovision contest if we win next year. So, the subplot is that he is the one that planted the bomb on the boat that blew up all of the Icelandic singers, except for, obviously, Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams, and he's going to kill Will Ferrell at one point, and then he gets a knife thrown in his back by the magic elves in quotations, and he dies. And that subplot literally goes nowhere. It literally did not matter in the end, obviously. Um, but just stuff like that is really dumb. Now, comedy-wise, what did I think of the comedy in this movie? I didn't like it. Honestly, I didn't. I did not laugh much during this movie. Again, it's my big issue that I have with Will Ferrell. Not that funny of a guy anymore. I, I know some people are probably going to hate me saying that, but he really is not that funny anymore. A lot of it is him just sitting there riffing like, oh, I'm going to say this bad word over and over again, or oh, I'm going to talk about uh, how Americans view Icelandic people or how we view American people in a funny accent, and it's just like not funny at all. It's a lot of Will Ferrell making sex jokes. It's a lot of him saying like shit over and over again. It's a lot of him just being like, oh, look at me. I can do a funny accent because I'm an American trying a different accent and like it's just goofy and really stupid and in the end I thought it was one of the worst performances I've seen out of Will Ferrell like most of the good comedy I guess I would say comes from like the shock humor of it like when the boat explodes and they react to it I guess that was kind of funny because it's so out of nowhere when Will Ferrell screams like ice on the side of a cliff falls off for some reason the ghost of this Katiana chick shows up at one point covered in fire and flames I was like okay really random and funny but any other comedy moments after that are really that funny like there's a moment where Will Ferrell is up on stage and he's like I'm going to have sex with everyone in this room and he just starts pointing out all of these different people and is like I'm going to make the love with you and stuff and I'm like this is just so cringy what happened to Will Ferrell so that was one of my biggest issues obviously I did not think that Will Ferrell was very funny in this movie and I know again that's going to be a controversial statement but it's true he's just not that funny in this movie even Rachel McAdams who was really good in Game Night couldn't save this movie her character I could get the most into because she wanted to be a big singer but Lars was holding her back and guess what in the end she stays with Lars despite the fact that like hey if you got rid of this guy, you'd be big. You'd actually be making something of yourself. But no, you just want to live the simple life with somebody that treats you horribly. I didn't like that. Story-wise, this movie has a very basic formula. Basically, you know when they, uh, the, Lars and uh, Sigrid are together in the movie, they're going to love each other, but then, obviously, Lars is going to reveal he's a bit of a horrible person and that he's out for his own gain and not to uh, benefit Sigrid. Also, they break up for a stint. She has an interest in another guy. He has interest in doing things on his own. He gets mad when he doesn't win the semifinal contest and storms out of there, obviously thinking they lost, but then his dad has to tell him, or I think it was a worker, has to tell him, oh, no, Iceland actually won the semifinals, so he jumps into the water, swims back home, finds Seagrid, the two of them get back together, it is just 
formulaic and cliche across the board. There's nothing good about the plot, and that's my biggest issue with Eurovision. Despite the songs being good, this movie is not good. Its plot is very bland and generic and has honestly been done a hundred times before. The characters are all horrible to an extent and you can't really get into them. You don't get much characterization. The comedy is more missed than hit. Will Ferrell is doing a terrible Icelandic accent. In the end, I think that I'm just going to give this movie a 4 out of 10 because it was just kind of meh in the end. I didn't hate it to a certain extent, but I didn't love it. It's going to go in that 4 out of 10 meh tier. I wish that this movie was a lot better than what it was, but like I said, my Will Ferrell hatred bias just kind of kicks in here, so... Thank you guys for listening to the first review. We shall now move into First Cow. An A24 film? About a cow? Yeah, I guess I'll watch it. So First Cow is a brand new A24 film that didn't really get much of a theatrical release. In fact, it ended up getting thrown onto VOD because the time it was supposed to come out in theaters was when Corona obviously hit. So this movie has kind of gotten a weird theatrical release slash VOD release because it kind of flew under the radar. Now, most A24 fans like myself obviously had it on their radar from watching the trailer. And the reason I think I was most intrigued with this movie is that it looked like it was going to be one of their simplest films. And I think that's partially why I wanted to watch it. Now, I love A24. My favorite company I was say making indie films today. I think that a few of their films from last year made my list. One of their films was my favorite film of last year, obviously, on that list. But as a lot of people know, I love A24 as a company, and I will watch anything they put out. To me, they haven't really made a film that's bad or disappointing, and I don't think they ever will because they really know what types of filmmakers to pick. But talking about A24, I would just say this is a company I hope continues to grow in the future, doesn't become corporate greed or anything, or is just like, let's promote this indie film because it's trendy or something. I want them to give everybody a chance to make their movie, and I think that's why I appreciate them so far. But I'm going to admit, and this is probably going to be a bit of a controversial statement, First Cow might be the first boring film to most people from A24. And the reason I say that is because this film's pacing is about as slow as a snail. I'm not even kidding you, this is probably the slowest movie I have watched this year, but it's also one of the better movies I've watched this year. So, if you can't get into movies that have slow pacing, this movie is certainly not for you. So let's talk about First Cow. So the premise of this movie is that John Megara is this man named Otis who has the nickname Cookie. He is an aspiring baker that wants to do better things, but he's been traveling with this group of fur trappers that don't really like his passion or respect him. He runs into a Chinese native man named, uh... King Lu, played by Orion Lee. Orion Lee is like, hey, I want to make a fortune here in this world. I want to make something of myself. I'm running from some Russians whose friend I killed, and I just want to do something more in America. So he starts to see that there is a talent in baking that is in Otis, and he decides to exploit it to make money off of the baked goods that he's making for all of these people that buy him up. And that's pretty much the premise of the movie. Oh, and I guess they need milk from the cow, which is why the movie is titled First Cow. Uh, but first off, let's go over the things that I like about this movie before I get into some of the negative I have with it, but it's not really as much as what you think. First off, this movie character-wise is brilliant. This is another thing that A24 is very good at, is fleshing out their characters. So, Otis, that's played by John Megara in this movie, I gotta say, first off, I wasn't sure about his character. I actually thought he was a little too simple for the movie, but as it goes on, you do see more of what you like about this character, his motivations, what he wants to do more as a baker and stuff, and you kind of fall in love with him as a character. One thing that I especially loved about him is the fact that he always has, like, a determination to prove himself as a good baker. He has nothing. Everybody keeps telling him that he is basically nothing and that he's just stuck traveling with a group of trappers because he has nothing better to do. He's basically their bitch cook and he makes whatever they tell him to. But when he finally meets up with, of course, 
uh, King Lou. He's like, hey, you know what? You obviously want to make money off of the baking, and I want to show myself as a great baker to like these higher-ups in uh, American society and stuff. So they come together. And obviously, for King Lou, he's a Chinese immigrant that doesn't really have much. He's on the run and is afraid of getting murdered by other people. So obviously, he wants to make something of himself. He wants to have the American dream of making a lot of money for himself. So, of course, when he sees that Otis has a passion for baking and making all of these great goodies and stuff, he wants to exploit it. He wants to capitalize off it, which is where, of course, the theme of capitalism fits into this movie. So let's talk here for a second about another character in the movie, Toby Jones. So Toby Jones, obviously, is the ideal capitalist in this movie. He sees, obviously, what is being made by Otis and thinks, you know, there's monetary gain out of it, but obviously, that's what King Lou wants to keep to himself. He's like, nope, this is my bright, uh, this is my light, I'm gonna keep it, I'm gonna make money from it, you guys can't have it and stuff. And so, obviously, Toby Jones does slowly start to realize, well, hey, my cow hasn't been producing as much milk as it should. It starts to dawn on him, like, two and two together, like, they've been stealing the milk from the cow. That's how they make these great goods and stuff. And so, that was a fun character get, uh, to get into. But I would say, getting into the themes of this movie, like I said, this is probably the simplest A24 film. And now, let me explain why. The main theme of the movie is obviously friendship and ambitions and how friends come together in times of wanting to share different creative ideas or ambitions or wanting to grow more and live out the American dream and stuff. And this movie homes in on that. It also homes in on capitalism, obviously. Like I said, King Lou exploits the work of Otis in this movie and capitalizes off of it. Even Toby Jones wants to capitalize off the hard work. And so the movie is obviously about, hey, we've got this great baked goods and we can use it to our advantage and we can make millions, if not billions of dollars off of this stuff. And so it's great watching that dynamic play out in this movie. Another thing that I absolutely adored about the movie besides those themes that are prevalent in the movie is the camera work of this movie. Okay, shot on 16 millimeter, four by three aspect ratio and just looks like it fits the theme of this uh, era in the movie. Like literally, the movie is set in a gold rush era. The first cow has literally been brought to the Oregon country and is going to make a fortune because they don't have that in San Francisco. They don't have that type of luxury to have a dairy cow up there. So obviously this cow is producing a lot of goods that they don't have, which is why they're so gullible to spend so much money on these baked goods, which is why King Lou says the entire film, we can't go to San Francisco. We can't go there. There's too much competition. We're better off here. Love that. And I love the filmmaking still shots of just the landscape. Like you'll see a tugboat that's going by, or you'll just see a bunch of forest or just people walking around these gigantic, beautiful landscapes and stuff. And like movie is beautiful. The, the grainy, grainy 16 millimeter really fits the stylism of this movie. Another thing I will say that I like about the movie is the way that it actually handles not really having like a huge climactic fi uh, finale because a lot of this movie is building up towards a very simple climax. It's not a huge climax, just very simple. So obviously they've been stealing milk from the cow the entire movie to make their baked goods. When they finally get found out, it isn't like they're on the run the entire time or it's not like a shootout sequence or anything. No, they both separate at one point. They find each other, they rest, and then obviously the movie ends after them rest. Uh, it's foreshadowed at the beginning that they possibly did die. It's more likely that they did die because this kid is digging in the ground and he finds a skeleton, digs it up, and it's two skeletons laying in the same position at the end of the movie where, of course, Otis and King Lou are sitting. And so I thought that was brilliant to have foreshadowing play out in the movie. I think the themes are very prevalent. I think the characters are very good. Camera work is obviously very stylistic. So do I have issues with this movie? Because I know with A24 films, a lot of people would say, well, usually you don't have a lot of issues. And no... 
Here's the thing that's kind of tough for me, though. I will admit, this movie did bore me to tears at times. It does drag on with its pacing a lot, which is why I said this movie is going to make or break for some people, because if you cannot enjoy a slow pacing or a slow-paced movie, not for you at all, I would say. This is not a movie that fits your style, doesn't fit your ego or anything like that. Like, this is a movie you may not uh, vibe with at all. But I vibed with it, because I did like it at times when it was kind of talking about the story elements of it and stuff. Like, there isn't a whole lot of dialogue, which I guess I understand why it's more show-don't-tell, obviously but I do like that there is limited dialogue in the world. I feel like that builds a better atmosphere for the movie, but I will admit at times I did get very bored with the pacing of the movie. I think that this didn't have to be like, what was it, two hours and one minute? It easily could have been like an hour, 30 minute movie, maybe hour 45, because some of it does drag on. Uh, some other issues that I obviously had with the movie is like certain background characters or characters that just show up at some point say what they're basically here for. Like there's a group in this uh, little tent area that's basically expositing like, oh, this cow just came to the Oregon country. It's the first cow to come into Oregon country. It's going to make a fortune for this capitalist and stuff. And like, there's a lot of moments like that where they just exposit what's going to happen, obviously. That kind of bugged me because it doesn't feel like an A24 thing to exposit all the time. Uh, but other than that, there isn't really a whole lot I hate about this movie. I would say this is one of the better movies I watched this year. I did enjoy this movie from start to finish. Now, I get it. Like I said, could bore people to tears. I could be completely wrong. People could watch this and go, oh, this most boring movie uh, I've ever seen, and I would completely understand that. So, like I said, here is my synopsis of the movie. Uh, I think it has great camera work, great stylism. I think its editing is also very well done. Uh, I like the themes of it on capitalism, friendship, ambitions. I like each of the character dynamics that goes on for our three characters that appear in the movie. I think that the movie is very stylistically well made, but the pacing at times was not for me, could get a little boring, and I also thought that some of the background characters that just exposited information were a little unnecessary because, again, like I said, that's not really the a24 style but again that's nothing to really rag on the movie i'm gonna give it an 8 out of 10 i really did like this movie i know this is gonna be make or break for some people they're probably not gonna like it because it's a little slow and boring and they will argue well there needed to be more dialogue but to me it doesn't i feel like this is a movie that shows more than it needs to tell and again you should show not tell obviously but great movie from a24 i wish i would have saw this in theaters because i feel like i would have gotten a better experience because usually when i see an a24 film in theaters nobody's in there it's usually just me and a friend watching it because most people are turned off by a24 or i guess i should say the common movie crowd but anyways i'm going to move on into the next film that i talked about which of course is uh uh palm springs Palm Springs is the brand new Hulu original film that was shown at Cannes last year and got its theatrical 2020 release on Hulu this year. It is a Lonely Island joint venture movie and obviously it has been getting a ton of praise currently. I have heard nothing but good things about this movie and so all I kept hearing was that oh it's such an original film, it's one of the best rom-coms we need right now, the highlight of 2020, best film of 2020, like everything I was hearing about the movie was nothing but positive praise. And look that's not a bad thing, I don't disregard a movie if it's getting a ton of positive praise obviously but sometimes I think that the positivity towards a certain movie and people are calling it like a masterpiece or the best movie of the year is kind of skeptical for me because I'm again I'm not one of those guys that usually agrees with like the mob mentality on a movie but I will say I do go in a bit skeptical when it's nothing but praise because most of the reviews on Letterboxd for this movie are like an eight or higher like the majority of the movies are like eight out of ten nine out of ten ten out of ten this is a great movie Lonely Island does it again they make a movie that's so fantastic uh, comedic wise and stuff and so 
I'm sitting here kind of just thinking, all right, so I got to go into this movie, obviously, with the mindset of it's very good, but I'm going to probably be uh, let down that it's not as good as what everybody is saying that it is. So as a lot of people know, this movie is made by the Lonely Island Company, obviously, or at least I think they were involved in some way. Uh, I love uh, Lonely Island and their music, obviously. I think they have made some of the funniest songs I've ever listened to and stuff. Like, I enjoy the song I Just Had Sex or I'm On a Boat or Jack Sparrow because the lyrics to them, obviously, are great and stuff. Like, one of my favorite lines in... uh, I just had sex is obviously, but she put a mag on my head still counts. It's one of the funnier lyrics that I just, for some reason, it hits with me. I don't know why. Uh, but Andy Samberg has obviously led that group for years and stuff. They have made movies with the group, obviously, because Hot Rod is one of the better comedies that I have seen from them. It is probably the best comedy out of them and one of my uh, favorite comedies of all time, obviously. I do like Hot Rod. Uh, I also do enjoy Popstar. That's a great parody movie of something like a Justin Bieber type character played by Andy Samberg. And now this is their newest film. And so I was very much looking forward to it. Uh, the brief plot synopsis of it is, is that Andy Samberg plays Niles. He's a bit of a nihilist, obviously. Doesn't care about what anybody does or what he does to them, obviously. He's been reliving the same day over and over again. Uh, but this woman named Sarah, played by uh, Kristen Miltiari, uh, is like, hey, I'm gonna follow you into this cave after you just got shot with a bunch of arrows by this one guy. She ends up getting stuck in the time loop with Andy Samberg. Is very ticked off at first, but the two of them slowly learn to grow with each other except the day, even though by the ending that she really wants out of this day because it has been bad repercussions for her, but he's kind of concerned about getting out of this day and her not liking him anymore. So first off, let's talk about this movie in a nutshell right now. What do I think of it in like a brief synopsis? Good, but not original. There are a lot of things with this movie that kind of bugged me watching it, and I'm not going to say it's a bad movie, because in no way, shape, or form is it bad. Is it generic? I wouldn't go that far, but I would say this is a good movie, but it has a lot of problems with it because it's not as original as it could be. So let's talk about the performances, obviously, because that's the first thing I'd like to talk about. All of the actors and actresses, I would say, are doing a pretty good job. There are a few that I didn't really like, like one of the love interests between Andy Samberg uh, was kind of annoying with her acting. I thought that the father at times came across as a little bit overacting. Um, But I thought Andy Samberg was all right in this movie. I will admit, comedy-wise, 10 out of 10. He knows how to deliver comedic lines and stuff. I think that's the best part about him. But dramatic scenes need a little bit of work. It's kind of like an early Adam Sandler, I would say, where, like, Adam Sandler took time to finally be able to do more serious moments in his movies and stuff, make something like Punch Drunk Love, the Meyerwitz stories, or Uncut Gems. I'm hoping that Andy Samberg will, as time grows for him as an actor, grow into more of, like, an Adam Adam Sandler-type situation where he can do more serious comedic scenes and stuff. Uh, I thought that Kristen did a very good job in this movie. She was the most believable character because she was kind of like the audience person that would get put into this scenario. She's freaked out waking up to the same event over and over again. She wants to get out of there. She thinks that killing herself will finally fix the time loop or whatever, or that her coming up with some crazy scientific uh, explanation would disprove whatever's going on. But no, she learns that it is going to have to take her learning about how to getting out of time loops and quantum physics and stuff in order for her to pursue and get out of there. And I loved her character. Thought she was the best part of the movie, obviously. J.K. Simmons for the small role that he had was hilarious. I liked him being this guy that is vengeful and hateful that he'll never get to see his kids grow up because of the time loop and stuff, and he hates reliving it, even though he realizes, like, hey, it's truly not anybody's fault for what happened. I'm just kind of angry that I'm never going to get this one thing that I wanted in my life, which was my kids to have a better life, see that happen, and so you kind of do feel for his character that he's somebody that is kind of trapped in this day, but doesn't want it to happen to him, but obviously Andy Samberg's character is basically identical to Bill Murray, nihilist, obviously doesn't care about what's going on, but that nihilist learns to be like, hey, you know what? There's a lot of things to love in this world and stuff. There's somebody that I care for and all of the things that are going on in this crazy world and stuff. And so it was great
great to kind of see that dynamic go back and forth between him and Christian and JK obviously showing up when he did. So what about the comedic moments in this movie? Because as a lot of you guys know, Groundhog's Day has a lot of comedic moments where Bill Murray is just like walking in, stealing a donut from somebody, talking really rudely to a bunch of people at a board meeting, and then he'll like throw himself in front of a bus to kill himself if he's just like, you know what, I've had it, I'm going to keep killing myself to get out of this loop. So how does that movie stack up to what Groundhog's Day did, obviously? So I gotta say, it doesn't have a lot of moments like that. Like, there's a montage, I would say, that kind of shows them, like, oops, they're killing themselves doing dumb stuff. But, like, it never goes to the extent of Groundhog's Day in which it was, like, laugh-out-loud funny or laugh-out-loud funny original. Like, there is a funny scene where Andy Samberg is talking about all of the people he's had sex with during uh, the time loop and stuff. Like, he talks about this lady at the bar. He jokingly says that he had sex with the Bride of the Father, this other girl and stuff. Like, there's funny moments like that. There's another great montage where, like, he's like, oh, yeah, J.K. Simmons has killed me repeatedly, and... And we see a quick edited montage of J.K. Simmons torturing Andy Samberg, setting a pool on fire, just like making his life a living hell. Uh, there's some funny sequences like where J.K. Simmons shows up as a cop. She runs over him and then she get, uh, he gets tased, falls on the ground and stuff. She jumps in front of a truck, obviously. Like there are a lot of funny comedic scenes in that way, but they never get to the extent of Groundhog's Day, if that makes any sense, where it's not like a memorable death or anything. There's not like a memorable moment or anything. It's just kind of like, oh, cool. She threw himself or she threw herself in front of a truck, I guess that's kind of funny or oh cool she drove into this person or this happened to her like yeah that's kind of funny but it never has like a memorable death or a memorable uh, moment within the time loop that feels like it could be remembered like Groundhog's Day was. So another thing that I'll talk about with this movie is that I think that it handles a lot of the situations very well because there's one plot thread that's going on during the movie where uh, Sarah accidentally slept with, or I guess the bride, slept with Sarah before the wedding, obviously, and she doesn't have the courage to tell her sister, obviously, but she tells her once during uh, the wedding ceremony and it causes like this rift where like the ground shakes, something is spewing through it, and then dinosaurs start walking at one point. And I like the mystery part of that, obviously. I thought that was one of the better parts of the movie in the way that it handled that scenario of being very vague obviously but at the same time it never gets brought up again it just happens once and never is brought up again obviously but I think it's supposed to show like oh look you're creating uh, cracks in the time loop and stuff but like if that's what they're going for kind of lame because they don't go any farther outside of that obviously um so to talk about the rom-com-isms of the movie um this movie is doing nothing different, I will say. It is following the bare-bones same plot of every rom-com that has come out. Two people aren't really sure if they like each other at first. They actually hate each other at first, but as they bond under stuck together, they slowly realize, hey, this person isn't so bad. I think I'm going to enjoy having a life with this person. So the two of them to get together for a little bit, then they fight over some stupid event. They separate. The guy wants the girl back or the girl wants the guy. The two of them meet up at the ending, have a romantic kiss, and they live happily ever after like it is very formulaic in that sense they do nothing to invert that whatsoever because it plays out like a standard rom-com and I was like okay that's very lame another thing that bothered me about the movie too is it's not wholly original in the time loopisms of it and stuff because they find a way to exploit it much like hey this is what Groundhog's Day hey this is what Happy Death Day did like hey this is what this movie can do to exploit the time loop and stuff like in that regard, great. It kind of tries to do its own thing, like, hey, just blow up the time loop, but again, that's kind of lame to me that that was the choice that they went with, because again, Groundhog's Day was more clever about it, but this movie was just kind of like, yeah, you know, blow it up. That makes sense somehow, even though it doesn't, because that's another thing that kind of bugged me, that there's some holes within the time loopisms of the movie and stuff, like they can kill themselves repeatedly, obviously, or they can uh, spoil something that's going to happen as the day goes on and create a rift, but there's no big consequence for it, obviously. Like, dumb moments like that were stuff that I didn't really care 
care a whole lot about. Another complaint that I had is there isn't really a ton of characterization in this movie, and I know that's something people are like, oh, we're tired of you saying a movie doesn't have characterization, but it's true. We don't get to learn a whole lot about Andy Samberg, a whole lot about Sarah. Like, we get bits and pieces of what their former life was like and stuff. Like, at the ending, when they're sitting in the pool, Andy Samberg is like, yeah, I have a dog I need to go pick up. And she's like, wait, you have a dog? And then movie ends on that line. The family comes back and is like, hey, what are you doing in our pool? That's about it. You don't get to learn a whole lot about the characters. It, it just really bugged me. Uh, but camera work-wise, this movie is shot very gorgeously. The colors look great. It's actually uh, actually shot in a way that uh, made me engaged and convinced that I wanted to watch this movie just for solely that it looked beautiful. Uh, I thought the score that accompanied, uh, accompanied it was kind of fine. I thought that the editing was fun and stylistic in a lot of ways and like the death scenarios or the crazy montages and stuff. Uh, but again, I think that this is uh, this is a fine movie. I think that this is a movie that you can watch once and maybe never watch again, or you can watch with a group of friends, have a good time, and then maybe revisit it with them sometime down the road. I think this is a good movie from the Lonely Island Company, but again, it's not as wholly original as it could be. I like the moments in the movie where it has fun with its time travelism, some stuff. I like the weirder moments in it, like the rifts that happen and like the dinosaurs walking across. I thought the chemistry between Andy Samberg and uh, uh, Sarah obviously were great in the movie, but it does have a lot of problems with it obviously like I said you don't get a whole lot of characterization within the movie it's not very original it does everything a rom-com does before there's some acting performances that I was kind of like meh on and stuff but for the most part I think I'm going to give Palm Springs a 7 out of 10 I think that this is a movie that I would probably watch again at some point but I'm not sure when in the future I would it's a movie that could make my list for the year I'm not so sure because again there are a lot of great things about it like I said some scenarios are really fun I like the way that you have characters like J.K. Simmons that are like I want to see my uh daughter grow up and stuff and I want to see my family move on from this day but I'm stuck here and I'm kind of having to accept that and stuff I like it when they reveal things that are going to happen in the future and it creates all of these weird scenarios and stuff but again not very original I would recommend people just watch Groundhog's Day over this with Bill Murray again Andy Samberg's character is directly ripped off from Bill Murray in a way he just grows a little bit more but um yeah that's Palm Springs so I guess we'll now move into the last movie which of course is Relic I have finally seen the first great, not really horror, but horror psychological thriller family drama slash mental illness film of 2020. This is the first film I am confident in saying I really did like from start to finish. Do have issues with though, but I will admit this was a great movie and very refreshing. So as a lot of you guys know, I have kind of been let down this year, obviously, by most horror slash psychological thriller slash drama films that have come out. Obviously, I wasn't high on The Lodge. Obviously, I wasn't high on Shirley. And some people agreed with me mostly on that, which I was shocked. And actually, the general consensus is now kind of going more my way on that movie, which I'm kind of shocked by. I thought I would be indifferent on it, but no, most people tend to agree with me. But I like this movie from start to finish, obviously. This is the first great, not really totally horror film that I saw this year. And I'm I'm going to explain why. So let's start off with, of course, The Lodge and uh, Shirley and talk about why those films don't really hit the mark for me. So like I said, The Lodge was a film that was talking a lot about purgatory and where do we go after death? Is, is there a heaven and hell or are we doomed to be stuck in this place of purgatory forever suffering? And I really liked it when the movie was talking about stuff like that. I thought those were the strongest elements in the movie when it got into the purgatory-isms, but what didn't work for me is when it wanted to abandon all that with the kids going, oh, it was just a prank, bro, and obviously turning it into every other psychological thriller where she snaps, of course, goes crazy, kills somebody, tortures the kids, and is just psychologically broken by the ending. 
it felt very bland and cliche, and I didn't like that the movie ended like that. In fact, I really liked it when it was going for more of, again, like I said, the purgatory angle, but abandons all that to become just another standard psychological thriller. Now, with Shirley, I did think the movie at times could have gotten to that level of honestly being something more, being more than just like a typical psychological thriller film slash drama, obviously, but again, it had kind of poor characterization for most characters. I thought that the ending was a little odd, how it kind of had three separate kind of endings, even though some people said you could string it together, but I don't really buy that because they're all so tonally different and all don't really fit the movie in a way. I also didn't like the fact that the movie at times didn't really give a whole lot into Shirley Jackson's life as much as it could and stuff. Like, there were a lot of issues with Shirley, but with Relic, this is the first film I have seen this year that I can say I really did like from start to finish, and I'm going to explain why. So the movie is about a woman named Kay and her son, or not her son, her daughter Bella, that go to find Grandma Edna that has obviously been in this house. The neighbors haven't seen her for quite some time. They have a search party for her. She shows back, at, uh, back up at the house one day, but is clearly battling with dementia, and it's up to them to figure out, do they want to do something to help Grandma or accept the fact that she does have this dementia problem? So I gotta say, first off, this movie thematically is probably the strongest one I've seen because it commits to its theme, unlike the other two movies I talked about earlier, better than I would say The Lodge and obviously Shirley did. So the obvious running theme of this movie is mental illness and dementia because obviously the movie at the forefront, the house that they're in the entire time is supposed to be representative of Grandma's brain, obviously. Grandma Edma's brain. Like, she's throwing things out, obviously. Things keep rearranging on her. Rooms keep changing, obviously. Things are becoming more and more different for her. And obviously Obviously, that's one thing that I really liked is the house is representative of Edna's deteriorating mind and stuff. And so obviously when they took the little glass plate from the cabin of the great-great-grandfather and put it on the door, it had a significance that even he had the mental illness that Edna does in dementia and stuff, and that plays out very well. I also like the fact that the movie never strays away from that, because there is a running theme of dementia in the movie. The neighbor talks about it, obviously. Kay kind of brings it up at one point and is talking about, yeah, obviously this is thing that occurs in the family. We all go a little crazy sometimes. And I like the fact that that the movie has a running theme of dementia, and they're trying to help Edna as much as she can, but she clearly shows symptoms of somebody with dementia. At one point, she gives Bella the ring, and she puts it on, obviously, and she's like, I want you to have this. I want you to keep it. It is a family heirloom and stuff, and, like, they bond a little bit, dance, but then at another point in the movie, she sees the ring on her, and it's like, give that to me. It does not belong to you. Who gave this to you? And, of course, pushes her around, threatens her to get out of the room. Other times, obviously, Kay would just talk to her, and she'd be wandering around the halls at night, like, I thought she had left and stuff and so it does show like there is a bit of a uh, deterioration to her mind that's going on and stuff and you do like the fact that you are seeing Edna slowly kind of break down as well as the house because like I said certain rooms in the house start to change certain elements of the house start to become creepier the black spot on the house is growing more and more which obviously is representative of the dementia growing in her head because as she slowly starts to break down more the house becomes more decrepit gooey moldy looking and stuff which obviously shows that the dementia is starting to take over obviously another thing that I really enjoyed about the movie and was something that I think most people would agree with is this is one of the first films that gets into seven deadly sin or not seven deadly sins uh the seven stages of acceptance or the stages of grief obviously um obviously like shock anger denial acceptance like the movie goes over all of that like when they first can't find her they're in shock they're in denial with the fact that she has dementia even though she keeps getting told it they're angry that she has dementia at one point they try to test her to see if she truly is gone and obviously that's when more of the horror element stuff and then the acceptance at the ending when they're peeling the skin off of her and they're revealing the really creepy black body as them being like, you know, she has dementia, but we can't truly leave grandma. And I love that, that it goes over the stages of grief in this movie and does it so well because every act in the movie is one of those different stages of grief, obviously. And I love the fact that the movie was not afraid to shy away from that and mix it in with the theme of mental illness and dementia, obviously. 
So let's talk about the acting in this movie because that's another thing that really impressed me. So first off, one thing I gotta say is that Emily Mortimer, uh, Mortimer in this movie that plays Kay, fantastic. I gotta say, she's gonna probably be snubbed much like Tony Collette was for Hereditary because the Oscars doesn't like horror slash psychological thrillers slash drama movies, obviously, but she's fantastic in this movie. At times, I couldn't believe that she was able to have the range that she did. Like, obviously, her mom is breaking down. She doesn't want to, like, cry about it or anything. She hates the fact that this is happening to her, and it's constantly trying to be like, I want to help you, mom. I want to do better things for you. You aren't as crazy as what you think, but her mother truly is gone, and at the ending, she can't accept the fact, and it's just so beautiful the way that it's done. I thought that Robin Nevins in the movie that played Edna also is probably going to get snubbed, has a terrific performance in the movie. Watching her slowly dip in and out of her dementia cycles as the movie goes on is really convincing. She really can do horror well, just having like that on-edge creepiness like some old lady would have, obviously. Like, there are a lot of great things about her that are slowly in her performance that just kind of seeps into your skin and gives you chills, obviously. I thought the daughter was also very good in the movie. Usually I'm not high on most, like, kid actors or I guess, like, young adult actors actors in movies because I think they can make or break a horror movie, but she does very good. She's obviously trying to love her grandma and understands what she's going through. She has a bond with her, but hates the monster that her grandma is obviously becoming because her grandma is obviously more mean to her. She constantly doesn't remember who she is, and it's breaking her heart a little bit that her grandma is like this. At one point, she's like, we just have to give up on grandma. We can't do anything to help grandma, but mom slowly realizes, no, we can't truly leave her because it's not her fault that she has this illness, and the daughter comes to slowly accept that as the movie goes on, and it's just kind of brilliantly done. Camera work in this movie is great. Uh, obviously, was shot in a bit of 4x3. Kind of changed to 16.9 times, I would say. But, like, this movie was very good in that regard. I love the shots where they're in the tiny corridors, just trapped and stuff. The way the camera follows them around to the winding room that never seems to end and stuff. I like how the movie is paced. I think that the pacing of it being more of a slow burn horror works. And then, of course, when the third act, more horrorism elements of it happens, where, like, Grandma's bones are breaking into and she's chasing with the knife and crawling on the ground. That's all really well done, in my opinion. That all builds up to that perfect perfectly, I would say. Another thing that I really like about the movie is the way that it finally addresses the fact that this is much like Hereditary, where it is an illness that carries on in the family, because at the ending, and this is a spoiler if you don't want to listen to it, even though a majority of this review has been spoilers, when obviously the girl looks on her mom's shoulder and sees the black spot, like dementia is forming on her, much like it has taken over grandma, obviously, because like I said, they peel the skin off grandma at the ending, and she's completely black, obviously, and it's supposed to be representative of, okay, dementia has truly taken her over, it's truly over for her, this illness has like taken her mind, but we can't leave her because she is still a sweet, beautiful lady. But obviously the daughter looks on the on her back and sees the black spot and it terrifies her, obviously, because again, it's kind of genetic, hereditary is passing down from her. She'll get it at one point. And it is sad to think about because the movie is so dour and so sad the entire time. But that's why I loved it, because more movies need to get into that headspace of like, hey, not everything's sunshine, uh, sunshine and rainbows, kiddo. There are going to be horrible things that happen to your family at times. And like, that's the thing that I especially love about the movie. It just gets into the elements of dementia, uh, mental illness, stages of grief and stuff so well. Now what are the elements I don't like about the movie? Because I think that's one thing we have to go over very quickly. One thing I don't like about the movie, and I kind of agree with this mindset, is I don't like the male characters. To me, most of them are either just expository characters that talk about, oh, well, here's a horrible thing Edna did, or they don't really need to be there. I don't think that they even needed to be in the movie at times. I felt like the movie was unnecessary without them. Like, I get it. The neighbor across the street had to tell a story about how her son that has Down syndrome obviously played a game with Edna. Her dimension kicked in, and she locked him into a cupboard, and he had to come over and help her and stuff. And, like, it's supposed to show, okay, this was a significant event. But outside of that, 
they don't really matter. In fact, those characters could have been cut out, and this movie could have just been a grandma and family-centered film and stuff. I also didn't like at times that the rules of the movie could change, because you don't think at first the movie is like The Babadook, where it is a manifestation of like, okay, so it's stages of grief, denial, obviously, like it plays out in that way where The Babadook is just a manifestation of all these horrible things, but this movie at times kind of betrayed its rules and became like more of a, oh no, the house is alive type scenario, even though, like I said, I wasn't like uh, against that. I thought that was a good twist, but I felt like that kind of betrayed the rule sometimes because it had set itself as like, okay, this is going to be more grounded. It's dealing with dementia instead of you to know it does have horrorisms of it and stuff. But now the house can change rooms and corridors and stuff, which kind of felt like a betrayal of the world they were going for. But I will admit this movie is great. Do love it. Probably one of my favorite films this year so far will easily make my top 10 best of the year list, obviously. Um, I'm going to give Relic a solid 8 out of 10. This is a great horror movie. I hope more people see it, obviously, because again, this is going to be a film that probably flies under the radar because it didn't come out to theaters, and I hope more people see it. Uh, like I said, liked it better than The Lodge and Shirley, obviously. think this is a great movie. I can say that with confidence this year. Would recommend everybody goes out and watches it. So, thank you guys for listening to this podcast. I don't know when the next one will be. That is the thing. I don't know what movies are coming out because, again, like I said, most of them are getting delayed to next year, but I will inform you guys through, like, obviously Discord or something like, hey, here's the movies I'm going to do for the next podcast when more come out. Thank you guys for listening, though. I hope you continue to listen even with Brian not being here. See you next time.